Hey everyone, and welcome to Cozying Up with the Clear Cut, where we get up close and personal with women that inspire us. Today, we are sitting down with Emanuela Asabor. She is a joint MD candidate and PhD student in epidemiology at Yale University School of Medicine and Public Health, whose research sits at the intersection of social medicine, epidemiology, and health policy. Take a listen. Hey everyone, and welcome to Cozying Up with a Clear Cut, where we get up close and personal with women that inspire us. Today, I'm sitting down with Emanuela Asabor. She is a joint MD candidate and PhD student in epidemiology at Yale University. We met in Africa, actually, a couple months ago in Botswana um, for the Forbes 30 Under 30 trip. And I was like, this woman is so impressive. (laughs) We need to have her on our podcast. So I'm really excited to have you today. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I have read your bio and it's extremely impressive, but I want to hear it from you. Like, what exactly are you studying? Do you do? And I know you were involved in a lot of stuff with COVID. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us kind of the work that you have been doing and how you got into it? Sure. Yeah. So I am an MD PhD student. So I'm in medical school, but I'm also pursuing a PhD in a field that's related to my interest in medicine, but that's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's public health. And so I try to pay attention to the social factors factors outside of biomedicine that influence people's experiences with the healthcare system. So I think about racism, I think about poverty, I think about gender, um, and how those forces um, shape someone's illness experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so that's um, most of what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, some of the research that I've done with COVID in particular um, looked at how residential segregation really um, prevented access um, to Uh, COVID testing for a lot of populations that were particularly at risk for COVID infection. Um, So that's like an example of the type of work I do where I look at something that's sort of more of a sociological issue and think about how it influences healthcare. Which is like super relevant these days. Absolutely. absolutely. (laughs) You're studying the right thing at the right time. (laughs) So what like experience sparked your interest in healthcare? Sure. So I think you know, when I was younger, my parents are immigrants. And so I feel like there's sort of a list of careers that you like hear, you know, <laughs> yeah. that your parents are doctor, lawyer, with. exactly, <laughs> maybe engineer. Yeah. Um, and so I think it was sort of floating around in my mind um, for a lot of my childhood. But I would say the experience that really kind of framed my desire to get a joint degree in particular probably came freshman year of college. Um, I took a medical anthropology course, which was taught by somebody who was super prominent in the discipline. And I didn't know that at the time. I was like 18, like just <laughs> newly in school and just like excited to be there. Um, and I remember my first day attending the class, he had a guest lecturer of somebody who was his former student, now like a really dear colleague. Um, and I thought that dynamic and that sort of mentorship dynamic was really cool. Um, and so that that sort of picture of what academia could be like was really cool. Um, and also it was the first time that I heard anyone speak about the social influences of health 
health in a structured like academic way mm-hmm. i had thought about like science and science equals health basically right. and that was kind of all i knew but that moment um, really opened my eyes to like the structured and like intentional study of all of these other factors that shape healthcare, and those ended up being the factors that i was like most interested in and most passionate about so i would say that course experience was really um eye-opening for me and i think from then on and also both of those professors were md phds and so i think from then on i was like i want to be exactly like them so i signed up for for the program um what are some challenges you face while working on your phd yeah so um so I think you mentioned now that my work is like really timely and I yeah. think that's true and I think that before 2020 it was a little bit more difficult to get some of the more traditional folks in my department on board with some of my interests. Mm-hmm. My department is pretty um sort of pretty quantitative and pretty kind of traditional field epidemiology. That's sort of what dominates. And my interests are a little bit different. I do some quantitative work, but I also do qualitative work. Um, So I do a lot of mixed methods. And so my approach to questions and some of the things that I was most interested in were different from a lot of the other doctoral students in my department and from a lot of what the other sort of professors in my department were primarily interested in. So I think it took a while to sort of bring people on board to like why this particular approach made sense for um, the study of infectious diseases. Um, So I think that was a challenge, sort of trying to like build um, that support network. And I think what ended up working really well for me was not limiting myself to my department. And so I, you know, would build relationships with faculty in within the School of Public Health, but in different departments, I would build relationships with people outside of the School of Public Health entirely, even from other institutions. I have lots of um, really Um, great mentors from Penn and Harvard where I was an undergrad and I sort of rekindled those relationships and I found that really helped me um, get some perspective from people um, who could sort of help me um, kind of make my ideas better. Mm -hmm. So what were like some of the findings like in COVID that had to deal with more of like a public health kind of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the primary thing that I found was if you look at, um, I had this like really striking finding in Chicago, for example, which by like most measures is the most segregated city in the U.S. And I created these maps to sort of illustrate some of what I was um, studying. And if you take Chicago and you um, map on racial groups in Chicago, um, the availability of testing sites mapped on almost exactly um, Mm -hmm. to like where different racial groups were situated. So in the parts of Chicago that were like mostly black, there were like zero testing sites in most of those areas. And so I think seeing that like really striking visual representation um, and then seeing um, some of these challenges sort of repeat themselves when it came time for um, kind of COVID vaccine access. And even now with like monkeypox, people are thinking about how do we like- Monkeypox now. It's terrifying. What do we do? I we're am, still not over COVID yet. I know. I think the thing, I think what's really, I was listening to, um, 
uh, someone who actually studies monkeypox talk about how like all of like the situation that we're in was completely preventable. Okay. And um, it's really I feel like <laughs> all situations have been preventable. <laughs> and what she pointed to, I thought was so interesting. Um, she said that there's this fundamental thing about America where the states are sort of allowed to do their own thing mm-hmm. and the sort of federal government is sort of its own entity. And the extent to which they interact is limited by like the literal fabric of our country, right? Right? Mm-hmm. And that some of the issues with monkeypox had to do with sort of a disconnect between a state public health agenda and a federal public health agenda. So, like, I don't know what the solution to that is, because that seems just so fundamental to um, the way that we, like, conceive of American democracy. So right. clearly we need some, like, major public health. Well, that's overhauls. kind of how it was. We're, like, New York, we were, like, locked down and, like, couldn't leave our houses. But my family in Florida Absolutely. were, like, running wild, like, doing whatever they wanted. Like, day and and I was like aren't we in like a pandemic? Like why am I locked in? Maybe right. I could just fly to Florida <laughs> and then like live a totally normal life. Yeah. yeah. It's like a completely different world. Yeah. Right? And yeah. that doesn't like, I don't know. It just makes no sense. <laughs> it doesn't. Oh. I think that for public health emergencies, we need something like more coordinated for sure. And Do we have to be nervous about monkeypox? So, um, <laughs> yes. So, I think that right now, um, we have a vaccine though, right? We do have a vaccine and we actually have, um, a generous supply of not only vaccine, but also a drug that actually treats monkeypox. So so once people get monkeypox, that's great. That's positive. Mm -hmm. Um, the con is a lot of people who aren't super seriously ill are having trouble accessing treatment because, um, it's necessarily prioritizing folks who, um, are more seriously ill, are immunocompromised, et cetera. Um, and so- Are we seeing racial discrepancies with the monkeypox vaccine? I have not vaccine? studied that. that okay. is, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. I have not studied that. I read a New York Times article um, that said that the distribution in New York seemed to be really limited mm-hmm. um, and that there was a possibility for some socioeconomic barriers in accessing the vaccine for mm-hmm. monkeypox, but I haven't looked at it systematically. But it wouldn't surprise me if there were, right? Because I think a lot of what I've seen in my work, my work um, has not been particular to COVID or particular to kind of any disease area. Mm -hmm. Um, I've studied, you know, HIV. I've done some work on police violence as well. And I think what I've seen is that when there are these... Yeah, I'm happy to talk more about that too. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what you see are these kind of longstanding and like deeply embedded structural barriers. And so what happens is if you don't address the underlying structural barriers, whenever there's another health issue, another global emergency, you're going to see inequities. And so I think that's really, if, if I could have like one takeaway, that would be the takeaway is like, just, I think, embracing our connectedness and really um, trying to build a more equitable world in general will help like really make sure that these like global health emergencies and the next random like weird virus doesn't become, you know, as catastrophic as COVID was. So basically what you're saying is that, you know, structures that we have in our like society mm-hmm. can lead to like diseases absolutely so can you talk about that a little bit more <laughs> <laughs> sure that's um, so interesting okay yeah so i'll talk a little bit about some work that i did in um 
in South Africa mm -hmm. in terms of HIV prevention. Mm -hmm. So I went in, um, not really sure what I would find. I was really doing an open-ended study, so more qualitative and just um, trying to be open to what people um, in the community that I was spending time with thought about um, HIV in their community. And I remember when I came back to sort of analyze my data um, and prepare um, my findings for sharing, um, that there are themes that came up with almost all of the people that I interviewed. And people would talk over and over and over about um, transportation barriers, lack of employment, all of these like non-health factors, right. right? Like they're not things that we maybe automatically think of when we think about HIV and disease. Right. Um, but people were basically pointing to the fact that they lived in this um, rural community um, that is a consequence of really, you know, post-apartheid um, realities in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And those um, kind of structural barriers, those economic barriers were really affecting their ability to access um, care. Mm -hmm. And so all of my findings, all of my um, results really pointed to social factors. I spoke really, really little about um, some of the kind of behavioral or kind of biological issues that you might expect when thinking about HIV. And so that's a theme that's come up over and over and over in the kind of work that I've done. How does that relate to, you mentioned like police, um, what did you say? Police violence, like mm -hmm. here in the US. Yeah, so I basically what I've done with police violence is I've tried to take the tools that I've learned from studying infectious diseases in public health and applied that to thinking about police violence. Right. Um, and uh, what um, me and my colleagues found was that um, despite years of like body cams mm -hmm. and like sort of incremental um, local kind of agency specific um, changes in our approach to policing the country that um, racial disparities and, and, and fatal police violence have not actually changed all mm -hmm. that much. Um, and so I think um, I think that and I think it's similar to some of the challenges that we discussed with COVID, right? That like it might be time for a more like coordinated kind of nationwide approach to addressing some of these issues um, because some of the smaller um, um, really local um, and agency-specific changes um, haven't really made a difference for the people that are really suffering the most from this issue. Do you think, like, it's realistic that we're going to get together and make these big changes? That is a great question. <laughs> that is a great question. Because we, <laughs> I think, like, the problem is apparent, and we, like, mm -hmm. I don't even know, like, gun violence is also something that's similar. It's kind of like an epidemic of its own. But, I agree, like, completely. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, this is, these are problems, but no one's really, like, coming together. To, I feel like, like every it. time there's something high-profile in the news, people really get upset, and then the enthusiasm just fizzles out. And something else comes, yeah. Right. And something else takes our attention, right? Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes I'm more optimistic than others, to mm -hmm. be completely honest. I think it's... Um, I think it's tough. I, what I will say, though, is I think that in the past, like, two years, um, I feel like it's been different. Like, I feel like the past two years have been... Um, it feels like the momentum has been more sustained in terms of people, like keeping these kinds of issues um or they've at least been acknowledged more so than in the past right, right. Like, that's the way it feels to me mm -hmm. um when i've thought about these like cycles of like attention to these issues and then kind of that attention fading out it does feel like these past two years have been different and mm -hmm. like the attention has been more sustained and more mainstream also right like um i 
feel like I'm having some of these conversations with like very different um, groups of people. And I don't know if that was true kind of prior to 2020. Right. Hey everyone, Olivia here. Hope you're enjoying our episode. Our clear cut collection features fine jewelry pieces inspired and designed with you in mind. Our collection is ever-changing, and each piece is handmade and made to order here in New York City. Don't forget to check it out and use the code COZY, C-O-Z-Y, for free shipping on any purchase. What are some major like misconceptions you've uncovered through your research? This might be a misconception that I'm not sure the extent to which this is held by, like, people at large or if this is something that's like super specific to like you know people in public health Mm -hmm. or like people um in medicine but i do feel like there's this hierarchy between like quantitative data and like number crunching and then more like experiential data Mm -hmm. and like sitting down with someone and hearing about their life experience and i found that Um, hierarchy to be completely false. I found um, that those two like forms of information gathering work really well together. And some of the work that I'm proudest of has integrated those two forms of data gathering. I'm not sure if that's something that like most people care about, (laughs) but but it's definitely something that comes up in my training a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) What are some goals you hope to reach like through your research? Yeah, so, um, so I think that I have never been like super interested in like one specific disease area. For me, it's always been like, what does this like studying this disease um, show me or kind of teach me about society at large? That's been my approach. Um, And, you know, I'm nearing the end of my MD PhD program slowly but surely. (laughs) Um, And I'm starting to think about residency and kind of what specific area of medicine I'm most interested in. Um, And so I think uh, moving forward, I'd really try, I'd love to try to apply um, some of what I've learned in my studies so far to questions in the realm of dermatology. Um, I'm really, really um, passionate and interested about how we can think about um, kind of equitable representation in a field like dermatology and trying to trying to combine my um my like interest in making sure everyone feels seen in a clinical encounter with um the world of like skin and um and hair and so yeah I think that's probably what I'd like to do next is think about questions specifically in the realm of dermatology that's cool awesome (laughs) so but you mentioned also like we kind of want to take away like what like a disease or something says about like society at large. Mm-hmm. Curious what you think like COVID says about our society at large. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I think COVID says a lot of things. Yeah, a lot I think of things. COVID says a lot of things. I think, I think, so I found COVID to be at times just like deeply, deeply embarrassing as somebody who was part <laughs> of the healthcare community, right? Like we had instances in the United States where there were physicians having to try to make a decision between two patients and who got a ventilator. Mm-hmm. In a country like the US, there's just no excuse for that. Mm-hmm. We have to like get it together. Right. So, so I think that- I mean, we, didn't we let like all these people off of a cruise ship to fly like on airplanes that everywhere? That also did not make any sense. Yeah. Yes. It, and oh, yeah, like, and that's, and that's something that's like old school public cool. health knowledge. Yeah. Like we knew better, Not to do right? that. Yeah. Exactly. And we like did it anyway. And so I think, yeah, so I think COVID just exposed a lot of like- We wore um, gloves, but like would not wear masks. Yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. 
crazy times. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think COVID said a lot. I think, um, I think it exposed a lot of kind of weak points. Um, I think there's a lot of like really cool stuff happening in healthcare in the U.S. There's a ton of innovation. Um, there's so much creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that we sometimes like don't do enough to invest in the basics um, of like just public health, um, like basic public health principles that can really keep people healthy and safe. Um, and so I think COVID just exposed like all of those weaknesses that in a country like the United States, we're making those kinds of triage decisions, I think is really sad. And I think the result was a lot of unnecessary loss of life ultimately. Like right. I think, and that's like super, super sad, you know? Um, I think that, yes, I I think any, um, any like loss of life or suffering that can be prevented, we should be trying to prevent. Right. So I think that's like, for me, that's like the biggest thing that COVID, um, exposed. Um, and I think it also just exposed a lot of our like interconnectedness, right? Like I think with the respiratory disease, um, it's not the sort of thing that like this group of people over here can be suffering from and it doesn't affect everybody else. That's just like not the way it works with something that's highly contagious and respiratory. And so I think it forced us to just like recognize how like deeply connected we are not just in the U.S., but also globally, globally yeah. um, and to like really bear that in mind in the way that we think about what's worth kind of investing in moving forward. Yeah, totally. What advice would you give for, you know, a young woman kind of wanting to follow in your footsteps or pursue a career in like academia or healthcare? That's so interesting because I think right now I'm very ambivalent if, so I'm deeply passionate about healthcare. I will always be doing something in healthcare. I am still taking my time trying to decide if I want to be sort of a traditional strict academic, to be completely honest. I think there's so many different ways to potentially make impact and sort of use my training to make impact. So, um, I'm still figuring that part out. <laughs> um, but in terms of advice, I think um, I think the most important um, advice that I've gotten that I've held really dear is um, someone told me early on in med school to write a mission statement for myself um, and to update that mission statement every year. And as I considered opportunities and commitments um, and tried to juggle things as I got busier to sort of refer back to that mission statement as like a guiding light so that I made sure that I was taking on things that were really aligned with my core values and whatever I felt like was my mission for that year or that season in my life. Um, And so I would I'm I would really encourage people to do that just to be like really explicit about what's important to you um, write it down and use that to make sure that your efforts are really um, aligned with whatever your vision is Um, and I think the second piece of advice is to be like um, shameless about seeking out mentorship. I think mentorship has been like crucial for me um, and different kinds of mentors for different things. Uh, mentors that helped me understand um, things that made me feel more technically proficient, um, but also mentors in terms of the kind of person I want to be um, and the kind of impact I want to have on my patients and to see um, people who interact with their patients in a way that like really inspires me. So I would say definitely at like every stage, seeking out um, someone who has, um, you know, had some success in whatever it is that you're interested in, I would definitely recommend that. I think that's crucial um, for academia, for healthcare, and probably for other um, fields as well. How do you, like, get a mentor? Are you like, hey, do you want to be my mentor? Or, like... (laughs) That's a great question. Um, So I've done a variety of things. Um, 
I think on occasion I have cold emailed people like, like hey <laughs> like you do you want to be my mentor yes but I think I think that works in um I think that works in academia and in healthcare there's a culture that sort of expects that a little bit okay. especially if you're a student I think that you can get away with almost anything as a student. If you just like play the student card, I'm a student at XYZ place, I'm really interested in your research, or I'm really interested in what seems to be your clinical specialty. Um, and I would recommend, this is super, super specific for health and medicine um, and academia, but I would recommend reading some of someone's research, at least the abstract, have a sense of what they do, and reference like a recent publication in your um, outreach email and say, you know, I just read your, you just recently published in this area, I just so happen to be super interested in that area. Um, and use that as like a jumping off point. Um, and I, I found that like 80% of the time people get back to you. Um, and so, yeah, I would not be afraid to like, just, just go for it. Um, yeah, I feel like that's how I found a lot of my, um, at least my like technical uh, mentors. Awesome. Yeah. Kind of switching gears a little bit, sure. just cause we're a jewelry company. So Absolutely. we have to talk a little bit about jewelry. <laughs> yeah. But one of our favorite things about jewelry is that they can have like special sentimental meaning or they mm -hmm. can be passed down. Do you have any like pieces in your collection that you particularly love or have like emotional connection to? Yes. So my um, I have like pieces of gold in particular. I have rings and bracelets that my um, grandmother basically melted down some of her jewelry to make things for her grandchildren. And so my mom um, let me know this like story behind the jewelry. And um, so I immigrated to the U.S. And so I didn't really get a chance to grow up with a ton of my extended family. Mm -hmm. So I think that Where are um, they? mostly in Nigeria and mm -hmm. also in the U.K. Okay. Um, and so I think that jewelry um, was a form of like special connectedness, especially for people that I like couldn't see super frequently. Yeah. So that's probably the most sentimental um, jewelry that I have. And I want to do something similar. You know, if I have daughters, like I definitely want to, you know, give them something that's like a piece of something that I would wear directly. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Awesome. So what's next for you? dermatology <laughs> yes, yeah. hopefully so you're gonna go into like healthcare doc being a, like a physician or? yeah so I think that's what I'm trying to figure out like what is this mix gonna be for me right. I definitely want to spend at least um part of my time directly taking care of patients mm -hmm. um ideally in a dermatology setting like that's I would love to do that um and I'm still trying to figure out kind of um how I'll spend the rest of my time because I know I don't want to be a hundred percent clinical um uh, recently, I started, um, I've developed an interest in um, in medical technology mm -hmm. and innovation and sort of trying to, again, kind of apply that equity lens to thinking about how we can create um, technological solutions in Durham and in other areas that are, that work well for everyone, right? Um, and so that's a space that I'm really interested in as well. Um, I feel and like I, if you want a side gig, you can also be a really great like commentator on the news. <laughs> I would love that. My dream job is just to be like the CNN. This is the what is it, Sanjay Gupta? Like this is our medical that specialist. Is like, I would so love. that I feel like you could job. totally do that. You're totally qualified for that. I would love Sanjay Gupta's job. If anyone would like to hook me up, like let me know. Um, 
So yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what form things will take. I know that I'm interested in equity and making things accessible and making everyone feel seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know I'm really passionate about dermatology and thinking about skin and hair and how to kind of bring as much um, innovation and like thoughtful um, um, thinking to that um, space. Um, but beyond that, I'm honestly not sure. Would you ever go into like a government position? I have <sighs> thought about it. Um, I to make think the, the social I, changes. I know, I know <laughs> to, to, to explore the political yeah. route to social change. I'm definitely open. I'm not saying no to anything. I'm you not saying lot, no to virtually a lot anything. of, a lot of roots a and a bright future. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I've definitely considered it. I did a little bit of policy work with the New York State Department of Health before starting um, med school, and that was super, super interesting. I also think government is very slow moving. Yes. And so I think you have to have, like, to be effective in that setting, you have to have a certain sort of patience and temperament. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I'm still very undecided, as you can tell. I'm interested in so many different things. Um, but what I know for sure is I'm definitely going to be trying to do um, what I can to make dermatology care as accessible as possible and then beyond that we'll see (laughs) amazing and if someone wants you to be their mentor where should they cold email you (laughs) yes they can definitely cold email me at my first name dot my last name at yale.edu amazing i just did a mentorship event yesterday so i'm like mentorship is super important to me so if i can connect you to something or be helpful i'm happy to Amazing. Well, this was so interesting and so much fun. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Wow, that was such an interesting conversation. I really love sitting down with Emanuela and learning more about how our public policy can really influence our healthcare system. Um, I hope you guys took away as much as I did from that really insightful conversation. 